Welcome back to Labeled, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter. And really quickly, before we get going, it was just over one year ago when we began this series and covered the formation of Tooth & Nail and the tiniest little trickle of house shows and Calvary chapels and community centers organized by people like Billy Power. And then we saw the rise of Cornerstone with John Heron as the scene had just begun to emerge. So we've traveled quite a long way to get here. And today we reached the high watermark. It's a couple of decades of community building and talent compiling and large technological leaps and an exploding genre and a sharp and well-oiled indie label and the perfect band at the perfect time and all of that backed and supercharged by a multi-billion dollar global corporation. <laughs> now, what I think is very noteworthy is that almost none of this was by design and at almost every level, it's all best explained by people trusting other people to do it their own way and then surrounding themselves with people that they believe in. And that includes the fans and the parents and the good church folks and the DIY promoters. They all have this in common. Here's Tim speaking of Brandon. They're going to deliver. And I think he trusted a lot of bands to just do what they're doing and kind of assume this don't fix it if it ain't broke mentality. So let's just put a Molotov cocktail on everyone's speakers. I would say if they made Chase and Safety 2, like another album that was a little bit more commercial, they would have even done better. But who's to say they wouldn't have, right? Because Define the Great Line is an album that is, by the true Under Oath fans, is probably the, a lot of people's favorite album. And it's a great album. We had all kinds of drama with that record, though, like different producers, people were fired, and then the album leaked four months early. Four months early. And it was one of the most downloaded BitTorrent albums like of the year. And um, I gave them this huge, the most money I've ever given a rock band, and to this day, huge check. Biggest and, advance check, sign and check. Yeah, to re-sign them, even though I didn't even have to re-sign them, they owed me to find the Great Line. I could have just done that, and then they could have left. But they also turned down going to like Island Records. Island Records was willing to give me a big check, and then they could have gone to a major, but they didn't want to do that either, right? So, but they also wanted, they didn't want the major label to tell them to do Chase and Safety too. So what did I do? I told them to do Chase and Safety too. <laughs> but the good thing about Tooth and Nail is, is if you push back with me and you say, this is why we're not doing that, I want to support you where you're at. That's why you're on an indie label versus being on a major label. So they did it. And, you know, the album leaks four months early. And back then you just can't pop it up on Spotify and iTunes. It's like you have to set it up at Tower Records. You have to set it up at Best Buy. You have to set it up at, you know, all these different stores at Walmart. So you can't just pop out the record once it leaks. So that whole summer, we're just thinking we're gonna, the album's going to bomb. Everyone's had it for months. And the one that leaked was not even mixed. So in the end of the day, though, maybe it helped, right? Because there was so much hype on it and everybody had the unmixed album. Hundreds of thousands of people downloaded it. So they had, <laughs> I mean, talk about, that's almost like the new radio, right? Mm -hmm. And they had a version that never to this day has ever come out, right? Mm -hmm. It's the it's a board mix. That album then, when it did drop, it scanned 98,000 first week. It was number two on Billboard and, you know, 
Timmy's a god. He's always right. No. <laughs> yeah, so he just, they, they killed it, you know? But we were spending money, like huge money on videos, like going to Sweden and shooting music videos that were like Grammy nominated and just huge amounts of money were spent. We spent over a million dollars marketing in that album with no radio. What, a million dollars marketing? Yes. How does, how does that even, like, what does that roughly well, break out Well, it's just a different to? time. So, for example, if you wanted to have an in-cap at Best Buy, that's $40,000. Now, they take in around $100,000 order of music, but if it doesn't sell through, you lose $40,000. Plus, you have to pay for the shipping to buy the CDs back. I mean, in the old days, it just was different. You'd have to pay $18, $15, $14, $16 for a CD, and then we would pay stores to position it in the store. Mm-hmm. You could have shipped them two CDs for free, or they would just buy them and they would put them in the bin. But if you wanted to walk into Best Buy and see a big under oath display or something, that costs thousands of dollars. Shooting a music video, we use film and not digital cameras, so it costs thousands of dollars. But for one of the music videos, they built an they framed an entire two story house. For us, it was like crazy money that we were spending, and um, we just went all out on it. I remember, in fact, EMI got mad at me they actually called me their head of finance in new york called me and said you're like quadruple over the marketing a lot of dollars and i was like just relax it'll be fine and then by then it was too late to stop it because we just did it without their permission and then um when it scanned ninety eight thousand first week i called them i was like yeah did you see that <laughs> <laughs> if it was whatever it sounded like was it gonna sell 50 or 90 first week no it still had to be good and the album was good and there's some commercial songs on there for sure it's just a little bit more, it's, a, it's more serious. It's not as like, it's not like writing on the walls, right? It's, it's, it's a little darker, it's a little more serious. Mm-hmm. But they, I think for sure whatever they put out would have done well to a point, but it was a good record. How it's does, a good record. It's just not as radio, but that's fine. Like, I mean, and it worked out great. It's a good record. In your mind, it could have been platinum and then double platinum. <laughs> I think the Chase and Safety could have gone platinum. And then if maybe if they did the Define the Great Line then and then did Chasing Safety too after that, but then Aaron left the band and then they got more indie cred. And then they got more indie cred. And then they broke up and played like six shows. Mm-hmm. They didn't do like a really farewell tour or anything. Again, I would argue, why not do it? Like Amber Lynn, they do their farewell tour. They're like 60 shows, yeah. Australia, yeah, yeah, you know, that. just taking it like home, right? But who's to say that now that they're back, that there more people are interested because they didn't do a farewell tour? I mean, I don't know. Timmy, literally, whatever they do, they do it. They're, they It works, right? Having Under Oath on the label is the defining part of the entire history of the label in my career, for sure. I mean, when you think of the 90s, you think of MXPX, right? Supertones, Plank Eye, you know, whatever. Staves Acre, all the bands. And then when you think of the 2000s, you think of the first band you think of is Under Oath, right? And in, in that May and Amberlynn and Norma Jean and things like that. But they are the pinnacle of the label in that whole era. So, and do you what, think what can I say about that? But wow, you know, yeah, from '01 to '08, '07 was like the golden time. And so it was. Did you have any problems with EMI and Under Oath, even even with the Define the Great Line that you it was that you were able to. They, they, they were happy with all that, right? Yeah, I mean, I dropped a ton of money up front on marketing. Those were the high times of the music industry where they barely were bothering me or keeping track. So, I mean, if I tried to spend that much money marketing a group in, like, 2011, they would have been breathing down my neck. They would have cut off the funds, you know. But back then, in 05, I was kind of the golden child. And, I mean, they did get a little bit upset. They called me, and they were freaking out. But, but once the scans came out, they're like, oh, never mind. Uh, sorry, uh, you know. <laughs> 
around this time is when we were illegal downloading was big and iTunes was just coming out. But the illegal downloading was helping us, right? Like their album leaking actually helped us sell the album. So if you think about it, the iPhone came out in 2007. And with that, MP3s that were mostly getting played on weird little devices in your computer and you get things from the BitTorrent sites or whatever, all of a sudden that became a standard. But Chase and Safety came out right before that. And so the downloading it was kind of like the new radio that helped us sell these CDs. So it was the perfect time to sell 500,000 CDs. Well, it's just interesting to me that they already sold something like a million albums before, right before there's any way to do anything other than sell CDs. So right. not only did the scene peak and your relationship with EMI peaks, they nailed the sound right, right ahead of the curve and just at the last moment where you can make money. <laughs> it's yeah. just crazy. It's top of the mountain. Yeah, so if you think about it, here's Under Oath that is basically coming out with a unique album, defining a genre, the peak of the entire scene. Meanwhile, CDs are still selling. The iPhone comes out in 2007. Chasing Safety comes out in 2004. Define the Great Line comes out in 2006. We sell over gold on both physical CDs. All the downloadings helping us. EMI loves me and lets me do whatever I want. So here is Tooth and Nail and EMI peaking at the height of the relationship. Under Oath's making the perfect records. They're defining the whole scene. And, you know, the whole music industry hasn't been kind of imploded yet by, you know, downloading. With all of that, Tooth and Nail was peaking from all the knowledge I learned from being 23 years old and starting a record label in my bedroom in 1993 to having a team of over 25 people, my own building, EMI backing, you know, several people had worked at several other record labels. So we had the best staff, the most connected, years of experience, um, Under Oath's making the right record at the right time, EMI's behind it letting me spin what I want, people are still buying CDs, it was the perfect moment to get two gold albums. Okay, so in Under Oath world, everything is bliss. Only Chasing Safety comes out, and you now are actually riding the biggest wave of this thing. I mean, you're, you're sitting right on top of it. And you talked about the universe changing. What actually are the things you started noticing that had changed? I think along the way, we all grew up and grew apart at the same exact time. And because before Chasing Safety, we're all in a van. We're either in that crappy tourist retirement van that we had when you first met us. And then we got a 15-passenger van, and we did that all through, you know, Coheed Tour. And then we jumped to a bus. And when you're on a bus, there's a comfort and an ability to get rest and to play better and to be healthier and then there's also this ability to disconnect and everyone has their own thing and nobody's driving and there's a bus or a bus driver. So the bus call is set later because the bus driver's already sleeping. So now there's more time to hang out after the show. And when you're on a tour like work tour or you're on a larger tour and you have friends now, like everyone could kind of break off. And as long as we're all back to the bus at 1 a.m., we're all back on the bus and we move on. And we had this like, almost forced camaraderie and communal living. And then it immediately in an instant stopped and changed to everyone can do whatever they want. Anyone can pay for a taxi or go out for a dinner because 
you know, we actually had enough money to be able to do things like that. And a disconnection just naturally happened. And everyone just found that they enjoyed this guy or that guy or this band or these guys. And, and then all of our kind of pent up, almost suppressed personal identities came out, but not in the group with the groups that we found that identified with how we lived, you know, and, and, and it was this really interesting thing to kind of come back after a two year cycle and just see everyone almost changing before our eyes, but not before our eyes. We just knew everyone was changing. And, you know, I went down this really deep, like minimalist me without you kind of a uh, hole and hated television and hated uh, sitting on the bus and, and was almost mad and sad that we How'd were you successful. Get there? To be an ascetic monk like Aaron Weiss a couple of years, a year and a half after having big success with your, you know, they're only chasing safety. That's a, that's a big jump from, from temp for Tim. That's a lot of change in a short amount of time. I think for me, I was very much still trying to reconcile and hold on to like a, a, a doctrinal structure of my faith. And everything that we were getting, I, I felt was wasn't actually super healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by by proxy and by the friends that I've already had, like I, I saw a simpler path, like a simple way, a simple approach on living. And and instead of just naturally gravitating towards that and accepting everyone else for maybe not doing that or not doing it as extreme as I was, uh, I, I almost felt like it was my job to to rail against that. You know, there's a movie on the front lounge and everyone's just vegging out and having fun. There's something wrong with that. And and I would rather like walk around and uh, search or go see something because this is what life's about. Well, did you feel guilty about being rich and famous rock star? No, not really. Uh, I, I, I never felt guilty. I just felt like there was a, there was, there was an appropriate way to deal with that and and not an appropriate way for me, but an appropriate way universally, mm-hmm. you know, and like for the entirety of the chasing safety cycle, um, I lived in community. I, I lived in a room with James uh, before the record came out. And when the record came out in this super small apartment where Grant stayed in one room and me and James were in the other room um, and I slept on the floor and I, I, I finally got a mattress and just put it on the floor and I have a three level Tupperware thing and everything that I own could fit in there. Um, and then we got paid. I just go to the bank and cash my checks and put all the cash under my mattress. Cause I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't want to do anything with it. And, and for the years that I was single and ma- probably making the most money I've ever made, I lived for under $300 a month with utilities included. It. And I, yes. was just, I was just happy. Yeah. I love that. I know I, I, that though. No, that totally makes sense. I mean, that we were doing the same thing. Emory during 2005, when we made the question up until we made the question about that time, we were living in a friend's base, a friend's parents' basement in one bedroom with six bunk beds in it. And, and it's so funny. Cause in contrast, Grant was always my roommate. He was always like somewhere in the mix, at least in <laughs> two of the apartments out of the three. And he, always wanted his own room because he likes his space. And then when he would bring up something like, yo, uh, we're 
sitting in camp chairs in the living room. I want to buy a couch. I'm like, great. Is it cool? Like I found a couch for like 600 bucks. Like if everyone throws in 150 bucks or 200 bucks, we could all buy it. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not throwing in 200 bucks for that. Yeah. And he would just get so mad at me. And he's like, why? And I'm like, cause I don't need it. And, and he's like, but if I buy it, you're going to sit on it. I'm like, yeah, but I'm also down to sit on the camp chairs we have. And he would get so frustrated. <laughs> and he would like buy like a nice TV and a nice couch because he wanted to live like a normal person. And I was just on my wave and I was like, I mean, I'll watch a big TV, but like, I'm not going to like pay for it. Cause I don't, if it went away tomorrow, I don't care. And now as an adult, you know, and having living with roommates throughout my life, like I was the worst roommate, but I was so in my own way, in my own wave. And like, I, I think if you ask the other guys that, you know, I wanted to be this guy or I was inspired by this guy and I went too far. And I think I did. But for me in the moment, it was like actually natural. Like I would go to the bar, I'd buy some beers, I'd buy wine. Like I, I, it wasn't like I, I ate out of the trash or anything of for, you know, years and years. It was more of like I tried an extreme level and then kind of settled on um I'm going to live comfortably, but comfortably to me is just not comfortably for you. And then everyone else kind of circled in a different way. And that's just how we dealt with finances and how we dealt with uh, quality of life. So you were kind of imposing the way you thought you were, you were kind of like imposing it on other people. Yeah. I mean, our first headlining tour, I kind of freaked out. Like the, the headlining tour at the Chariot, like we had a bus and I, 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 I didn't know what to think about it and I didn't want to be around it. And I was scared by all of it. What were you scared of? Um, what it was doing to everyone. Um, mm. looking back, I think the only thing that it, the only person that was having anything really done to them was me. Cause it was in my head all the time. Um, but like I rode with the chariot, like almost half that tour. Like I would just chill with Mark and josh and i would literally go back and ride in a van and i had a bus and i had a bunk and i'd rather just go to waffle house and like do what we used to do and like almost like a lost scenario where it's like i just want to go back to the island all i wanted was to get out of the island and now that i see the other side like i just want to go back to the island Mm -hmm. you know um and, and it was just this this idea of like you've never had to deal with this and you never thought you'd do anything of this level so i was never prepared for it and my family had never really had money uh, ever so there was i didn't have anyone to really confide in and we weren't really good at communicating so we weren't even talking about like yo what'd you do with your money like we had a pretty good tour payout or hot topic money came in like our we weren't investing we weren't doing anything with it like I literally bought a house in 2017 and I, I, I just, all my money was in my Wells Fargo Ugh, account, wow. Bank of America. Like, and it's real money too. Cause we've covered this. We've been covering this podcast a long time. The whole deal is there's not real money. It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some money or whatever, maybe. And then eventually some people can make a living kind of thing. But I think I remember and correct me here, but I believe I remember the rumor of under oath getting a six figure check from hot topic. Is that true? Yeah. Regularly. Not from your record label, not from touring, not from anything like that, but a store in the mall called Hot Topic was selling enough t-shirts and making enough profit off that Under Oath shirt with the pink uh, X on it to give Under Oath six figures a quarter? 
I mean, for for a time, yeah. I mean, 2004, I remember Matt Young, who still does our merch, he called me and he's like, hey, man. And I was like, what's up? He's like, I just wanted to call you personally. Um, I'm writing you a $50,000 check for your Hot Topic merch royalties alone. And I was like, how much? And he's like, (laughs) $50,000. I'm like, and he's like, yeah, that's just for the last three months, which is a lot of money to be making in your sleep when you're 23. Do not get me wrong. But when you're hearing like, oh, there's six figure checks flying around, it's like, it really doesn't equate to people being able to go out and buy Teslas and mansions. No, like we were, no, we, not we that. were never that rich, but like what's possible for your band to achieve is, is really the point more than what money you get or what you did with it in a way. It's just that a band doing that kind of music can be worth that much commercial value. You created an intellectual property that was worth just millions and millions and millions of dollars. Now, you didn't get all that money, but you generated it with your intellectual property. You, gener- you made millions of dollars for Tooth and & Nail and Hot Topic and the touring scene and Warp Tour. That's all money you didn't even get that you generated. Yeah, I would argue that is very true. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what's interesting is you're getting all this, and there's no one to tell you what to do with it. So hey. I just put it under my mattress and realized that probably wasn't super safe. So I just took it all down to bank of America that was walking distance from my apartment and just said, I have all this cash. And they were like, what, <laughs> where did you get this? I'm like, oh, I, I play in a band. And like nobody knows our band. So it's like, they're like, okay. And so you're, you're met with all of these social financial, uh, spiritual, uh, just exposures that you you weren't prepared for. It, it, I felt like at all times, in a very weird way, we were all in direct sunlight without sunscreen in mm-hmm. all in all facets. Yeah, you, and you don't know how to even size up the other people, the industry people. But to put it in perspective, a few months ago, you were at James Wisner's apartment or house, get and it was weird. Remember that wasn't long ago. At this, yeah, point. we were eating Totino's pizzas and renting that was a- Bad Boys too. That was months ago. That was months ago you were doing that. You were just new Christian kids, 21 years old, hadn't lived really yet. And anything you did live was just in that conversion van. So what is the world like? And are you guys prepared for it? It seems like not. (laughs) You know, it's a weird, that's a weird juxtaposition even at 21, 22. And and nobody, nobody tells you that when you get to a certain point, you have social leverage you know like you you can now confidently walk up to that girl that you were terrified to walk up to mm-hmm. you can now confidently walk into that apartment complex and ask to rent an apartment you can now confidently tell your parents what you think because you're not relying on them anymore like and and i'm not saying these are my struggles i'm saying every one of us dealt with those different things throughout our lives is one way to put it that you just all of a sudden had a ton of power because you you had social power you had you know financial power respect power like people wanted things from you you commanded things whether you wanted to or not you're in charge and everybody wants what you got like other bands friends like it had to feel that way in 12 months you're begging to be on someone's tour because you can't stop listening to their record it doesn't matter what club it's in and then a year later you tell someone you're going to back out of the offer unless they add X amount of thousands of dollars per night. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we didn't make X amount of thousands of dollars last summer. 
And now we're asking for that on top of what they offered us per night. And everyone's like, "Uh uh-huh. And then you're like, what is going on? And then you hear they said yes. It's a weird juxtaposition to go, I just want to get out of this weird bubble and then get out of it and see see what's on the other side and almost feel like, I don't know what to do here. So my natural reaction is just to recoil and go back to that bubble. And then there's other people in the band that go, thank God I'm out of that bubble. Now I'm like kicking it with XYZ. And now I'm staying up till 3 a.m. with XYZ. And like everyone's kind of, uh, everyone digested that new status and power differently. And I don't mm-hmm. think anyone did it much better or worse than anyone else. We all just did it the best we could. Yeah. But, but knowing that we were all digesting it differently and what was spinning out the other end was, I don't think something that we understood until we really had to kind of get back together again, which is when we went in the studio for Define the Great Line. Yes. What a great setup for going to make that creative groundbreaking record. You just you just set that up so nice that that, that chaos behind that, the tensions behind that, the decision to change your sound, or maybe it wasn't a decision, I don't know. But plus the pressure, plus the power, and now you've got to get back together and go follow up. They're only chasing safety. Holy shit. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. I think the one thing, like, under oath, we've had a lot of, like, dysfunctional periods in our band, as every band does. I don't think we're unique. I don't think we're special. I just think it, it was special to us when it ha- started happening, and it happened when we were older and everyone kind of matured, as well as everyone had enough resources to kind of facilitate whatever they wanted to do. But... I don't think that it was so unique as it was just shocking that it that we were actually able to make those decisions, whether they were right or wrong or good or bad, based on how you viewed them. But the one thing that we always clicked on, at least in this period that we're talking about, was the creative. Mm-hmm. Like the the one constant, whether I was living on the streets in a very extreme way and so-and-so's out partying and Grant's doing whatever and Spencer's doing whatever and Chris is getting married and settling down. All those things that were happening like, and were kind of tearing us apart from like the, the six bros in the van that were un, unbreakable. Um, when it was music time, it was like we were all back mm-hmm. and everyone knew exactly what we wanted to do. And like when we went, when Chasing Safety came out, we thought it was special for a few reasons. One, we were kind of like a metal band prior to that. And we were always on tour with Bleeding Through, Terror, uh, a lot of heavy bands, 18 Visions, and they're all like Mm -hmm. so sick and they all do it so much better than we could ever do it. And we wanted to be in that scene, but be different and kind of have our own island within that cluster of islands of uniqueness and what happened was we got completely engulfed in that warp tour wave and all of a sudden we're surrounded by a lot of bands both peers as well as coming up that were kind of in the same genre and and we weren't listening to those bands and i don't know which one's the chicken or the egg. And I think there's a lot of debate about that. And I don't much care to be in that conversation. But what I did know is when we went to make the second record, 
it was as ferociously like driven as chasing safety was, but from a different place. chasing safety we needed to create our own voice and finally be able to be creative and get what's in our brains out of speakers and we did that and that empowered us to kind of go okay what are we doing next and we had you know we were on emi because brandon had at some point merged his label with this massive corporation and we had we re-signed and we got a big signing bonus and they were talking us up and they were like, if you do what you did on Chasing Safety and we go to radio, you could be the next Fall Out Boy. And Fall Out Boy was the biggest band in the world at the time. And somehow they still are. And it's awesome to see all these bands that we kind of popped with actually still doing as good as they were when we were all doing well in the quote unquote heyday and it's Brad, but like they were so big, like so big Honda civic tour type stuff and all that. And we literally just told the label, like, we don't want to be that. We don't want to be them. We don't want what they have. We want to do something else. And we didn't entertain any producer conversations outside of just who we wanted to make a record with did they try did they try to get you to go with certain producers do certain things do you remember the details of that i i I don't think so i i think at that point brandon it was either at that point or after that point but brandon sat me down once and just said i'm not going to tell you what to do because I know you're either going to do the opposite or just tune <laughs> me out. And I remember, I vividly remember him saying, you and Daniel from Norma Jean are almost the same person where you don't listen to me. And then when you do whatever you're going to do instead of what I want you to do, I'm so glad you chose to do that because it always works. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a really interesting kind of nod. And that even goes back to the power conversation. Like, we're your next Zayo. We signed for like $5,000 and just hope we can like get on tour with Zayo. And now that dude who created this entire culture is respecting the dudes that we were touring with going, these guys know more about this scene in their band than I do. And I'm the wow. big shot with all the money. And that was, I think one of Brandon's most, I would argue there's a lot of tension with Brandon, with a lot of artists. I would argue Brandon's biggest success trait is knowing when he has someone that's untamable and letting them run because he knows they're going to deliver and i think he trusted a lot of bands not us not norma jean us norma jean and a lot of bands to just do what they're doing and kind of assume this don't fix it if it ain't broke mentality rather than going I want 10x ROI on the next record compared to the last record. We got to get 500,000 to 5 million. I'm getting my radio department involved. I own your records. You're going to re-record everything. He never did that to us. And I, I don't think he ever did that to anyone. That's really cool. Uh, EMI, not so much. EMI was... <sighs> EMI was great 
because I never had to interface with them. Um, <laughs> exactly. But but what I know about EMI is they wanted something from us. And after you release Chasing Safety and have that success, like you are now a commodity. You're a portfolio piece in someone's mutual fund and your job is to perform and create gains. And, and, and I don't fault them for that. Like that's what that is, which is why we said we're never signing to a major label. We met with two major labels before re-signing with brand and EMI. And it was under the idea that we can get some major label power if we happen to do something that needs it, but they're going to leave us alone. Mm -hmm. And whether Brandon fought that fight for us or not, um, I never personally remember EMI trying to get in the way of what we were doing because I don't think we were, they knew what to do with us Yeah. because like we weren't radio ready. They did two or three radio edits. They pushed us on chasing safety. We said, no, 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 no. And I think we were just, we're kind of bitches enough to where they're like, even if this could pop, it's not worth the trouble. So we're just going to leave this rogue thing that kind of makes money sort of alone. And we, we kind of became like out of the quote unquote big bands that could be a really good portfolio piece. I feel like we, we early on stood by, stood our ground and painted ourselves as this like feral thing that you don't want to do. You don't want it. You don't want to try to come in here and not like, worth it. Yeah. Talk, yeah. Like yeah. We'll, we'll make it, it's just going to be way, way, way too hard for the squeeze you're going to get out of this juice, you know, yeah. like don't do it. And so whether that was intentional or not at the time, I, I, I can't say, but I just remember I, we would talk to anyone from EMI the same way we would talk to Chad. It wasn't like, Oh, that's the big wig. Like he's right. the guy with the, $10 million. Right? That's a huge key to successful people and bands. I've seen it many, many times. They, they are a pain in the ass and that's, they, and that is in a way almost to send a signal or test something. It's not as, as egocentric as it may seem, you know, it's just to know your value and to, to be testing it because it will be taken advantage of. If you don't assert your domain and boundaries, it, that they will be taken. Absolutely. And they were like, you know, what do you think about radio? It's like, uh, yeah, we hate it. Like, simple do you want to go for it like no we prefer not to go for it mm -hmm. okay but you could it's like yeah we've been told we could 45 times like the answer is no you know what i mean like, <laughs> yeah exactly. I, I don't care um, That's awesome. and, and 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 i think by the time we went to make the final grade line they were like cool like as long as they follow up whatever they did with chasing safety we're all good mm -hmm. and we ended up resigning our numbers were up and to the right at the time so we you know we were able to to be in a really good position and we kind of got to do whatever we wanted. And, you know, like that was the first time because we recorded chasing safety for $25,000. Mm -hmm. We did not have a real budget. I mean, it's a real budget, but we did not have six figures to do whatever we want. Right. And we tried out a producer for, to find a great line. And we always knew we wanted Matt Goldman involved. We went to demo with Matt Goldman again. He came down to Atlanta and heard a bunch of the songs. And he was like a legendary producer in our heads. He did like all of our favorite bands, Seattle Dude, Tape, Reel to Reel, Whole Nine Yards, did a ton of records that crushed. And we were like, that's our dude. And they got him on a flight. He came down and it was 
one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had. And I, I came in and I think it's not because he, he acted so foully, but because we had this godlike Ross Robinson, Rick Rubin to me now, uh, pedestal we put him on and he just didn't meet it. And, and, and he was also kind of like, he didn't really want to, he didn't get us. And he's, mm-hmm. he's done a lot of cool DIY indie records. And, and then he came in and started trying to like structure our songs and tell us to like cut out intros and move this thing up. And, and I think he was just trying to produce it. And I think that he saw from our previous record where we could go and was trying to like really get us where we needed to go. And I don't know if EMI or the label talked to him before he came down, but the guy we got versus the music he's put out in the past was a like bipolar version of himself. And we were sitting in a Marriott hot tub in downtown Atlanta where we were staying. And we were like, dude, this guy is weird, but we kind of already pre-committed to him, but I don't like this. And it was me, James and someone else. And we were talking about how we love Matt. We love his drums. We love his vibe and how we loved how Adam D's records sound. Mm -hmm. And we were just like, what if we could just get like Matt and Adam to do the record and do what we want them for and not touch the other thing. And within like a week, we fired the dude that we thought we were hiring. And then we're in touch with Adam and Matt. And we created this like, super group of like matt's gonna set the tone matt's going to create the vibe and the drums and the you know all of the electronic stuff that we love him for and then we're gonna go to adam and do vocals and guitars and all this rad stuff and that's exactly what we did and like even that like we wouldn't have the balls to do that two records ago but now we understood, like, we had the money, we've proven ourselves, and now we can really be creative and go. And and to kind of circle back to where I was before, like, Chasing Safety put us in a scene where we were surrounded by a lot of what felt like similar genre-specific bands. And when we wrote Chasing Safety to kind of be a sore thumb in the metal scene, we really just tripled down on that. And we were like, Chasing Safety's poppy, it's got choruses, it's cool. But like, that was what we did at 21 and now we've moved on. And we want to write a record that is our favorite record. Like Jeremy from The Bled on that 2004 Warp Tour actually, I was asking him how he writes songs. And, and he said something so profound to me that it wasn't cocky and it wasn't from a cocky place. He's like, dude, I want the bled to be my favorite heavy band of all time. He's like, if I'm not writing my favorite songs, why am I writing songs? I'm not writing them for anyone else. I'm like, neither are we. He's like, then try to write your favorite record of all time every time. Mm-hmm. And if you're not doing that, like, then you're mixing something in with the art. Yeah. I love that. What is it that you're mixing in? Let's be more specific, because there's at least two things you can think of that get mixed in with your art at that point if you're not careful. But what what else, what would you be mixing in? What is the temptations? Well, you're creating a product for an audience. You're trying to uh-huh. sustain and or build. But when you have EMI telling you, don't do what you do for the people that love you, become the next Fallout Boy, you are at odds with going 
Mm -hmm. So we could, we could sell out arenas if we just play a game and just phone it in Mm -hmm. and go with Howard Benson or whoever's doing all the big stuff at that time. Uh, Mark Trombino was doing all the Finch records and the starting line records and, 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 or you just do what you like and do what makes you happy. Which is what worked with your fans in the first place. That's the trick part of it. Is that's what you did. That's what your audience liked you for. Is that you did what you wanted to do and it happened to land with them. They don't actually want you to turn and cater to them at that point. That is not what your audience wants. Yeah, it's almost like having a girlfriend or a wife that was attracted to you because you were unique and you were a rebel. And then you start getting up and doing whatever she asks you. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And you become this pushover baby, you know. And all of a sudden, she's like, "Oh, I'm so hungry!" And you get out of bed, and you're like, "Oh, whatever (laughs) you want, baby. You're my queen." And it's like, "Why are?" And then all of a sudden, you're mad, and she's like, "Why are you so soft, dog?" You know what I mean? And it's like, and and I think so. So times that times five hundred thousand. Yeah, (laughs) you know, and 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 times that with the boom of the internet the boom of streaming, the boom of being able to leave comments, the boom of going, I really hope they do this next time. I really mm-hmm. hope they have more of this. I really hope they don't do this ever again. Like, again, you're 24 and and it's not new for you. It, now all the things that are happening with technology are new for, everyone. new for everyone. And everyone's trying to synthesize this. And the label's going, what are these trends? Who's popping? Fall Out Boy's bigger than bleeding through so we have to put them here and like these guys are popping and they did really good and juliana theory crushed but then they did this so maybe we can fill like you have so many people that have your ear and and with under oath again like all of the growing up and the growing apart things were things that we had to deal with but like when we went in the studio we were like we're doing it the same way we did the last record we mm-hmm. want this weird DIY indie producer. He's obscure. He came in. He was not as obscure as we wanted. We said, you're gone. Simple. Mm-hmm. We want to talk to Adam D. Because we already know Goldman's here. We were like, let's just do the whole record with Goldman. He crushed the last one. And he didn't even produce it. You know what I mean? Like, But he, his, his DNA and his heart and his soul are all over Chasing Safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's this idea of we're going to do what we want to do. And we, we were writing these songs and we already had the songs. Like That's the thing is like, it wasn't like we were trying out producers to see where we we're going to go. Like we would slave with everyone in a room for weeks and or months, whenever it took, whatever it took to get 10 or 12 things that we said, these are done. This is the record. Nobody touches it. Nobody changes it. Fact. And when dudes start coming in going, cut this intro, move this here. It's like, pause this is not your record this is our record you work for us your Mm -hmm. job is to get our record to be the best version of itself that it can be and the best version is the version we think is best don't forget that and and that's a huge thing and that is 100 at this point in music forever lost there is nobody doing that aside from maybe like will yip and a few people that really dig in and just pull more soul out of the band's soul instead of trying to put their fingerprint on it. Well, the only way it happens now is independent creators that could do everything for their laptop and release what they want with no interference and things like that. Correct. That that exists, but but the producer guy doing that. the most original thing happening right now. 
Yes. Hip hop is one of the most collaborative and universally like original things. And there's a lot of BS in that genre. Absolutely. Do not get me wrong. But the, like the ingenuity and the fact that one dude can get all of his vision out of the speakers with yes. Ableton Live and an SM7 and it blow up on the internet with nobody touching. Oh, yeah. Now we're is talking. the most real shit ever. Yes. And and the problem is. Or maybe the good thing is, since we're talking about the quote unquote golden era, is that's exactly how we did our records. Yeah. And and so going into the final rate line, we just wanted to do another e-break. We're like, we want to go this way and we want to now try to write the heaviest record that we can write while still being us and not trying to be every time I die or Norma Jean because we can't because they're already there and they're already better than everyone else. So we have to go find a new voice in this genre that we just want to pivot towards. And, you know, from going from 21 to 23, like we all just got exposed to so much stuff and we were watching bands on tours. We were on tour with other bands. We were listening to new records. We were getting into all this stuff. And it's like, Glassjaw, At The Drive-In, Mogwai, all these bands, Isis, like all of these bands were now here. And we were like, we just want to write stuff that we listen to. And we want to write a record that we want to listen to. As like crazy as that sounds, like I want to listen to our record and go, this record crushes. And, And that's the goal. And I don't listen to our music regularly, by the way. But like when I listen to them and I go back, I'm like, dude, these are, I'm really proud of these songs. I think these are really good songs. And, and, and if you're not writing for yourself, then you have to answer, who are you writing for? That's right. Yeah. And, 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 and so I, I'd rather not have to think about those answers. I'd rather just do what I want to do. And, and we all wanted to do that. And that's the best part is like, we're in this new world. We have all this power, but where I think a lot of people pivot and go, I like this power. I just want more of that. All six of us said, great. Now we can do it even bigger and better. And our, like, we thought about when we released Chasing Safety, and we were like, dude, we had no audience. We had 25,000 people, 30,000 people maybe that had ever bought anything we've ever done over two and a half years. Uh-huh. Now we have four, three, four, 500,000 people that are going to listen to this instantly Let's just put a Molotov cocktail on everyone's speakers. Yes. I thought okay. that, I personally think that was the most punk. That was probably the single most punk thing under us ever done. Like screw doing warp tour for free. Screw doing all this. Like literally sitting in conversations and going, nah, we're just going to burn everything down because we know they'll at least listen to it for a week because they have to. <laughs> so this is my favorite part because let's do a little bit of numbers while we're while we get to the spot because like you said maybe there's a half a million people that have your cd now emi knows what's coming next should be bigger than that they want it to be bigger everybody wants it to be bigger but they're dealing with this feral cat as you describe animal as you describe it that won't play the game so everybody's got to be pretty nervous about it and hoping things go the way they want to go and they don't know but the value and the amount of power and money on the line here for you to make a move like this, it, it's just a lot. And we have to talk about the technology shifting 
and the landscape shifting and the music industry beginning to collapse, the rise of streaming. There are so many factors that are happening at exactly the moment. You're talking about what kind of records you want to make in 2006, right? Absolutely. It is factor after factor after factor. But at this point, here's who you are. You have 500,000 people that bought your last record, a half a million. Now, during that time, CD burning and file sharing and downloading existed and was rampant and uncounted and unmonetized. So if you had a CD, how, how many do you think copies of that CD does one CD represent, you think? Just come up with a number. In 2004, maybe like, you know, could go one to five and, 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 but yeah, I would say at least one to one or one yeah. to two. And I get what you're getting at. So there's multiples of people that had your CD and liked it or wanted to get it and acquired it. Now they didn't pay for it, but now it's not 500,000. We're talking about a couple of million people pursued your first CD and, and acquired it. And if not, they were beginning to download it and share it at this time and to experience music that way. Now, how many bands have you heard of and like that you never possessed a physical CD of theirs? That would be another multiple, right? Yeah, I guess okay. so. So now I'm, I'm thinking we're just in the tens of millions at this point. <laughs> tens of millions. Well, there are. Worldwide, how is there not? You tell me how that's not the case. And then you go beyond that. How many pe how many bands have you heard of that you don't even know what they sound like, but you certainly know who they're talking about? <laughs> Another multiplier. It's not one-to-one -one on any of those. It's multiple on each of sure. those factors. So without a doubt, there are tens of millions of people who have an understanding of Under Oath and what it is they do uh, that probably are favorable to it. And EMI and Brandon to the nail own that next record that you're about to make and this is what you decide to do with that molotov cocktail this is my favorite moment this is so great because it's my the favorite whole, it's my favorite moment in our uh, yeah probably it's it's just amazing and and so we get to this point with this scene so i just I, th I just find that such a fulfillment of of something pure that that moment that knowledge that punkness of that with all that on the line as crazy as it may be, I mean, you could have been, I mean, most people would just say, I would like to also be like Fallout Boy. That is the the common, that is the obvious decision. And you, most people would say, well, I do want to be a Fallout Boy, but you know, a little tougher and with some screaming, you know, maybe we'll soften it up a little bit from their only chasing safety, but we'll still keep our edge. But you just be like Fallout Boy, right? Sure. That's what everybody does in that, in that spot. That's what I would have done. That's what anybody would do. So you made a, a very strong move that I think means a lot, and I think it really turned out to matter a lot. So th that's I, I want to say thank you for doing that. That's a real special. You knew it was a special thing to do like that, I guess. That's what made you do it? Oh, I was excited. Yeah, I knew it was yeah. a massive risk. <laughs> like, I, I, I knew it was like it, there was just so much noise at that point. You know, like everything was crushing. You know, you had Fuel by Ramen, you had Drive Through, you had all these things. And it's like, I, I don't want to just, sh I don't want to level up and jump on a bigger wave. Like, I, I like the idea that we have our own thing. And I think that's just because of where we came from. Like, we were never told we should climb the ladder. We were never told that we had a ladder to climb. And when we found ourselves with a ladder, we're like, let's just build another ladder. Like it, we did it ourselves the whole time. Like, let's just keep doing it ourselves and, and let's go, you know, and, and by ourselves, I mean the whole team, like Brandon, Matt Young, Randy, like we had this nucleus of like, you're, if you're going back to your multiplier, there's 
you know, 2 million or 20 million or whatever the multiplier that you want to land on is there's all these millions of people and like all of those millions of people, what's exciting for me to think about all of those millions of people were affected by literally like 28 human beings in the world. Yes, that's exactly right. It was right. not, it was not a five floor Silicon Valley machine. It was 25 people max had a seat at any of our tables Mm -hmm. and we did all of that with that and i'm like i don't want to change that i don't want marketing and promotions groups and radio people because that just is it it just i cannot see it any other way artistically than dilution it dilutes the vision yeah and 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 at the time we didn't care about that and we still don't, I still don't, you know, it's like in that moment, we were like, we're making more money than we ever thought we would. And at the same time, we're all like, we're making more money than our parents do. None of us have a college degree and we're doing whatever we want with all of our favorite people. This is the wave I want to ride. And if it ends next year, it ends next year. I don't care, but I want this. I want to look back on the band and go, those were literally monumental and potentially some of the best years of my life. And, and, and when you're looking at it, like, in my opinion, when you look at something like a short term win, you're more dangerous than people that go, I have this. What do I have to do? Someone tell me what to do to keep this. How do I keep this? I can't lose this. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, I've always been on the wave of like, this will end. This will not be permanent. I will not be 50 headbanging. This is not my lifelong career. This is a thing that we have the ability and the blessing and the opportunity to do. And we can't mistake the fact that this is an anomaly for most human beings that have ever lived. And I just want to live it the way I want to live it. You know what I mean? And it's mm-hmm. like, for me personally, and, and I think everyone, again, going with the growing up has shifted that a bit uh, based on their needs or their desires, but I'm still kind of on that wave. I, I can't get out of it. Even when I see value in other things, I'm like, I don't care about those things. I don't want to do that. I d- if you want to do that, that's cool, but I don't want to do that. You mm-hmm. know. And I think we're, we're more open-handed with allowing new ideas to come in now but for me personally i don't care so would without spending time on that would you say that uh that has loosened up a little bit and you still find yourself kind of that way but under oath now is more free to for everybody to think differently like you you still sound like you would be fine with some of those other things but it's a different it's a different way now for me, it's it's more of I want I I I don't want to be healthy in the band. I want everyone in the band to be healthy in the band, and I think maturing and realizing that this band is not your identity allows you to not take every single thing that in your head is an artistic or potentially moral conflict as if you're shaming a legacy of this grandiose thing. I think for me, I think it's, for me, it's like uh, to, 
to still maintain that means that you haven't grown. And if you think like the word under oath or the 500,000 or the 38 million multiplier <laughs> thing or whatever it is, if that is literally earth shatteringly life changing enough to fight for, then do it. But it's mm-hmm. not. And like if under oath broke up in 2013 and never came back, music would move on and everyone's worlds would move on, including ours. So this isn't like the end of the world. But in 2006, it was. In 2006, it was the only thing we had. Nobody was married. Nobody had kids. Nobody had a vision. This was the vision. And we finally got it. And we have all the ammo we need to deliver the craziest curveball of maybe any band in the scene's lives. And nobody does this. And we're going to be the first to do it insofar that we can see, you know, you have thir- and the, the only two people that did it before us that we looked up to was Thrice and Thursday. They both signed to Island and they both put out fan freaking tastic records. Mm-hmm. They did not phone it in. They did not listen. They did the right record to keep their fan base. When the major label dropped them, guess what? They still played the 2000 people, you know, mm-hmm. And they're and, still good to go. Yeah. And yeah. Thursday is still relevant. Thrice is still huge. Mm-hmm. And like they didn't do the kiss of death for a quick turn. And then you bank on 50 people in a radio department and a marketing department that don't know you, don't have your phone number, have never seen you live, don't know what your biggest song is. And they're the ones that are going to make you fall out, boy. And then they're the ones that know what you need to do. Right. Give me a break. Oh, yeah. That's they're crazy. the smartest people in the room. Yeah. They're the smartest yeah. people in the room. What's yeah. my what's what 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 song that I what what song that we've written is your favorite song? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the 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 one on uh, Pure Volume. Which one? What's it called? Uh, uh, get out. <laughs> now, to contrast that with the staff at Tooth and Nail, though, Tooth and Nail staff in two thousand six was yeah. probably. John Frazier, Derek Tenbush, Scott. I mean, you had Invisible Creature pretty much on deck at all times. Brandon, Chad. I mean, those people literally like knew our favorite sports teams. Yeah. They knew all the way in and out. You know, as kids came, they knew what your kids' names were and roughly when the birthday was. You know, it's like, uh, and, and then extended through Randy and Matt Young, even. Like, Matt Young sent me a book for. Marin, my first child, our merch guy, the Hot Topic t-shirt guy, mm-hmm. you know, like everyone on our team is like a squad and a family. And it's like, you can't replace that. And then when you let the radio department or the big EMI guy tell John Frazier how to market a band, he blew up himself. It's like, what, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. Like, no, like I'd rather be a medium sized band, pay my bills all $548 of them or whatever it was, you know, at that time. And like, I don't need a lot. And like, let's just do what we want with the people we want. And like, Mm -hmm. let's not assume that because we're in a big business industry and we happen to be a big, small business that we have to play by everyone else's rules. So let's go make the right record. And the right record is the record that we said is right. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you like it or anyone likes it. Well, does people know the results of that decision? I think a lot of people do, but let's try to put it into some real focus here. I think unlike Thursday and unlike Thrice, however, your record was a smash hit with that approach, whereas I don't think it was for them. 
Yeah. The best part about the best part about Define the Great Line for me is Adam, who literally produced the record, came to Warp Tour and saw us play the record. And we did like half Chasing Safety, half Define the Great Line. And he said, dude, I was so pumped to see people freaking out and said, I was kind of terrified wow when we sent the record like he was so good at getting us where he wanted to go and staying like out of the way and and like he he, i think if it would have uh not done well i don't know that he ever would have been that honest and he wasn't that honest when we were were creating and and we told him like we, we we want you to assist us um Okay, so hang on a second. In that moment, then, does that mean that you were so powerful that Adam D could have possibly been worried that he was being a yes man to you? I I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? That's what he almost are saying. Like he wouldn't have really said it, but here you are. You've come in and d- dictated and dominated the terms. You just fired the last producer, by the way, because you didn't like his vibe. And now <laughs> Adam D is going to do exactly what you want to do. Well, when you is say that, like that not the situation, like Madonna's. I mean, I guess <laughs> in reality it was. Wait, is so that what happened? I, I mean, I, I I don't vividly remember having a conversation <laughs> with Adam going, "You do what we say." Um, but you didn't have to say it to him. Tony Soprano doesn't have to. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even when we were in the studio, like Randy was asking me to hear stuff. And we're like, nope, we're not sending it to you. Like, oh, the label's asking, the EMI's asking. And you're like, we spent like six weeks. We're like, you'll hear it when it's done. And then mm. we've got Chris Lord Algae to mix it, and we all flew out. Every single one of us flew out and test mixed it, test mixed everything. Every time he was done, he's like, everyone come in, and we all gave our notes. He made the adjustments, we printed it. Like we did not let anyone do anything on that record without us being there, aside from mastering. Not one. Even Chris Lord Algae, phone it in. He did Blindside. His record sounded incredible. That's cool. We want to be there. You know uh-huh. how much it's going to cost? I don't care. A lot. That that was probably ten thousand a song plus expenses or something. It like was that. something ri- yeah. ridiculous. But like, Just, and then to, to put all of us up, six dudes fly yeah. us out to L.A. from Florida and then mm-hmm. let us live there for a week, like. We built in a photo shoot for the album, I think, just to kind of yeah. make it make financial sense. But we're yeah, like, a, yeah. people aren't touching the record, man. And it's just, it was, but it was that record for us. It was as precious as Chasing Safety was, but we had more resources. And it wasn't, oh, we have money, we can phone it in and outsource. It's now we can really dig in and make sure every single thing is right. And creatively, that is a dream. Like that record was a dream to make. And like, we weren't lazy. We weren't like, working half days because we have the studio booked for two months it was grind the whole time yeah. and make sure yeah. every single thing is right wow. that's awesome. and adam was a big editor actually mm-hmm. you're right he did do what we said because he was a big comp guy and i said i don't want anything comped i i nothing gets comped he's like do you know how long <laughs> it's gonna take and i said i don't care <laughs> do not you you will there will not be one note of guitar played on this record that i didn't humanly play different than the last one mm-hmm. and he's like i'm gonna and he literally pushed back on me because he's a freaking savage he's like then you're gonna play it perfect or it's not getting done and i said that's fine 
Let's take 20 takes. We have to. And he literally, every single riff that repeats is a individually played riff. And he's like, just let me comp it. I think there was like three things. And by comp, you mean pay, cut and paste choruses or whatever. Like you, you play this and when the part comes back, you just repaste it for that. Play in yep. regards riff right once and I'll loop it six times. It's mm -hmm. fine. It's done. We can get this done in 20 seconds. Now let's take half a day and do it right. You know, and write to us in retrospect, like now I don't care. Like, it's just like, oh, that he, he had so many more tools, but we were so bullheaded and so DIY and so out of water. We were like, no, this is a record that people play on. Computers yes. don't play, people play. You know, we had this very DIY vibe about us. And, you know, we've since loosened up on some of that stuff, but it was like, nope, no comping. And right. Like, okay. It's going to be a long day of guitars. And we spent two weeks on guitars. I'm like, I don't care how long it takes. We're getting it right. Yeah, but th that this is not just Johnny Producer, though. This is Adam D, and not like he doesn't understand artists. He's in Kill Switch Engage, and he's one of the greatest producers and editors and guys out there. So that's, you know what I mean? That's a big, that's, that's hilarious. But, but when you're paying someone money, their job is to get you to where you want to be. You know, yeah. it's like, and it's, it, it's not a dick move, I don't think. I think it's just an, an impassioned thing. Like, if it was something stupid, like, can I use autotune on a vocal? I'm like, if he's cool with it, as long as the vocal sounds good, I don't care. As far as guitars go, don't fly my stuff just to make this faster. Like, this mm -hmm. is work. Let's get to work, you know? And, and he didn't push back on me. He wasn't like, oh, dude. Like, he was like, cool, man. You know, you know I'm going to put you through the ringer because I don't let records come out sounding like shit. I'm like, that's fine, you know? And it's like, he would edit this and that if I rushed something, but it wasn't like, a, oh, you did it once, let's fly everything, you mm -hmm. know? And it's like, so there were things like that. Like every single thing was like, we have the money for the first time and maybe the last time in our lives, especially with the music we're making. Uh, so let's do one record like right, right. Adam was like a little freaked out by it. And I don't know if he said he was terrified or nervous, but he, he said something when he finally saw it. I was like, dude, I was, I was nervous or scared or biting my teeth. Whatever he said was like, he wasn't sure. He's like, this is such a pivot. And then we finally let the label listen to it, but we listened to it with them. We took mm -hmm. the record to them and we listened to it in the conference room. And we listened to the whole record, seven minute long instrumental songs, the whole record, no skips, no give me the choice Dude. nugs, everyone block it out, an hour, we're listening to the whole thing, it's a story, front to back, go. And it got done, and it was silence. Oh, like, that sounds so tense, Tim. And we were like, that's the record. And it was just, I, I vividly remember, I don't know who spoke first, and I don't know how long it was, but it felt like forever. And I was like, so uh, that's it. Nope, there's no more songs. Like, what do you guys think? That's it. <laughs> you know? And they were just like, okay, like, that's a lot. You know, it was just kind of this, like, didn't know what to think. They, like, cause they literally didn't hear anything. Unless Randy <laughs> came in into the studio and sent them. I don't, I mean, I, I'm almost 100% sure that that time was the first time anyone at the label heard anything aside from maybe some like demos of like three songs. You've tortured these people, Tim. You've tortured all of these people for your art. 
well, maybe. <laughs> but it, it was fun. I can just imagine them listening through the record going, okay, they started this way. I like it. Energetic. Very good. Okay, off to a strong start. I get it. Okay, second track. Let's see where we settle in. You know, and just, well, surely maybe by the fourth, oh, by the sixth song, maybe the ballad will be, or the radio, maybe there'll be one that's good for radio. Oh, no, it's just instrumental forever. Sorry. <laughs> My knowledge, it was the first time any of them had heard any of it, at least finished, mixed, mastered, and they were just like, not bummed, not excited. They were just like, yeah. oh, like, whoa, because it's such a stark contrast, too, and it was really interesting. That's the beautiful thing about this is this is you and artists with vision taking people and then influential people and then powerful people and eventually fans taking them places. You took them there. They wouldn't have done this. You did this and you believed and they believed in you believing. And then they went with it. Right. Yeah. They wouldn't have gone there. They wouldn't have let you go there, but they believed in you enough, even when they were uncomfortable. And then they did. All I know is when the marketing came out for the record, like, they threw everything they could at it. So it wasn't like a, let's move on, let's shelve it. Ah, and I also think they so knew, good. like, there's, they're not going to tell us to go back and re-record something because you, you, you know where that's going to get you. So, yeah. like, it was just like, this is what we have. and uh, Push the chips in at that point. You have to. You have to. You have a, re you know, from a marketing perspective, I have a, wild card reasonable hand i could win everything or not but we got to go all in because we're kind of already in but i'm just marveling at you leveraging yourself into that position that's exactly that's just all i see you leveraged your way up there to that spot with what you had and pushed them somewhere they wouldn't go and then it all gets to go and we all get to take the ride and that's the thing that's the whole thing that that i mean if we're not doing that, then we just have really good desk jobs. I know. The biggest bummer, the record leaked from our studio, and the record leaked not even complete, let alone mixed and mastered, and we're sitting here with this finished product going, this product is going to crush. Like, the mix is amazing. Ted Jensen mastered it. It's amazing. We have it. And I, 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 I vividly remember my heart sinking going, uh, oh shit which one of us gave our master copy to somebody mm -hmm. and i had i i i i feel like i had either given my master copy or let someone listen to it in their car and i know we all have you know it's like don't let anyone hear it it's like oh we're gonna let everyone hear it that we want to but we won't tell you and i remember feeling uh -huh. like I really hope my best friend didn't just steal this. And then I found out it wasn't even mastered. And I'm like, where did this come from? And it all came out that it just, it was a old copy of a session from Matt Goldman studio. And they, but they, they, if I, I think it was like even out of order. Cause they didn't, I don't know. I just know that the record leaked songs leaked. They weren't done. They weren't even mixed. And that was the biggest bummer. 
is like the we first worked impression so hard. is that yeah. the first impression is this half cocked board mix and we're sitting on this unbelievable sounding finished product it's not polished it's just massive and mean and we're just waiting for someone to get it and we knew it was going to leak everyone knows it was back then it was like once you send it to like hot topic and you know your shipper would ship it like a week early the guy from hot topic takes it like we knew it was going to leak like four or five days before but Mm -hmm. this leaked like weeks before and it's like mid setup the hype's there and everyone had it and they didn't even have the proper songs let alone the final version and it was just a bummer and like honestly we just leaned into it we were like what can we do like what can we do and i i i think our publicist or john frazier or someone like someone or the team just kind of just started saying this isn't finished this isn't even the full album this is even the full tracks like you have no idea what's coming this is nothing compared to what's coming and almost like took a terrible situation and spun it into what i think might have been the most positive marketing strategy you could given the crappy situation you were just handed you know and of course emi's freaking out the record's already obscure and weird and now it's out and it's like what does this do for all of it and we just kept going got on warp tour 2006 you know there's planes flying over warp tour saying define the great line comes out this that and the other and the record comes out and we get a call and they're like you're number two in the country and you sold 92,000 albums in five and a half days wow and i was like what <laughs> you know wow. it's almost a hundred thousand albums they're like yeah nelly Furtado beat you for number one with like 160,000. she's like all over radio and this and that and i've i just remember thinking how much more money did they have to spend to sell 70,000 more albums than we did because we just did it like punk like we just did what we wanted we didn't do videos we weren't teasing singles we weren't on radio tours we weren't jumping all over to do one-liners and all this stuff we didn't do any of that (laughs) and i just remember going i think our 90,000 to me personally as an artist counts more than that 160 because we didn't do all that and, and and not that we were trying to be on to be number one on billboard that was just a bonus but that again going back to like new heights and new experiences you're faced with like well next time i want to be number one how, how did she get that and i just remember my natural reaction was just like oh my god this is the most bananas thing that probably will ever happen to me in my entire life and i don't i don't know that we'll ever have this again and i don't know that i care so i'm just gonna enjoy it and i remember calling my dad and he's like yo he always calls me timbo what's up timbo how you doing i'm like hey dad just want to let you know our record came out and we're number two he's like number two on what like billboard he's like billboard what because you know chasing safety there's billboard heat seekers and billboard rock charts i'm like Mm -hmm. The, the, the top 200, like the, we're, we're the second biggest album in the whole country. And he's like, what? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, 
there's only one artist that sold more records in this entire country than we did last week. And it's this girl who's everywhere. And, and then us, and he was like freaking out. And like, the, obviously the label's freaking out. We're freaking out. And it was like, it was just insane. And, and I don't know, I, I can't synthesize that feeling. I, I just, something in me knew you'll never feel this again. So just like feel it and don't think too much and don't worry about what's next. Just, you just did this and, and, and you did it your way, our way, your way being under oath way, not my way. Like you guys did this and you did it your way. And this is insane. And I just remember all of us just being like, holy shit. Like, I don't know that anyone's ever done this. Like, and it's a hardcore record. It's not even a chasing safety record. It's a that was the coolest hardcore record. Our, right. <laughs> our, our Molotov cocktail blew up. It blew. <laughs> it got it, it got on all the other gas, and it all blew up. Like it just blew up. I was just so pumped. Like that's honestly like the going back, like I think that's the proudest moment that I have. Not because number two are all the records, it's because number two and all the records and it's that one. Yes. It's not even it's not erase me with like made for radio singles and it's not chasing safety, which is like a layup pop album for that period done over again. It wasn't any of that. We didn't play a game and we didn't recreate what we just did. We just did whatever we wanted, and it was the biggest thing we'll ever do in our lives. I, I can't say enough about that week. I just don't remember because I was just enjoying it. I was like, and we were on Warp Tour, right? So, like, all everyone's just like, what the? F and I'm like, I don't know. You know, it was like, it was the perfect place for all of that to happen. What a dream, Tim. That moment with your dad is that I'm thinking of that now. It's like, what a moment for him. Wow, that's incredible that your dad gets that moment that is <laughs> yeah and then to think of it from and the whole the whole thing of of this these bands and from back to zeo to before that to wh how it got here to there all the way up to and this is christians to making doing the best we can with art figuring stuff out doing what we love doing it the, our own way do, you know trusting other people there's so many positive things happen and it gets all the way up there number two in the whole country it's that's a collective win and you're just sitting right there in, in in the middle of that spot for for all of us you know like that's 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 the big win that's that's you know what i mean that's the whole thing for christian art and and, and that's for everybody like we all share that and and like i i agree and it's like and it was a it was a full team effort and i think one thing i don't want to get lost in the conversation is like we did it we did it all and we did it with nobody's help we did whatever we no. wanted it was like full court press like emi was firing on all cylinders tooth and nail was firing on all cylinders we were firing on all cylinders our agent randy our manager like everyone was firing and like again 25 people did that what a win for not just us but like what a win for Tooth and Nail. What a win for John Frazier. What a win for Chad. What a win for Brandon, obviously. But, like, what a win for everyone. And, and, and it's like, we don't get those. You get those once in a lifetime if you're lucky. And we got one. 
Yeah. And that's cool. You just stand in awe of like the, the fact that it happened. Like we didn't plan for that to happen. Like we've never planned for any of that to happen. Chasing safety wasn't planned. Defining your line wasn't planned. Like we just worked our asses off and then more people worked more of their asses off to get it bigger and bigger and bigger. But like it was the same blueprint and like it just worked. Yeah, that's just humans working really good together, being attracted to a thing that they all realize is bigger than themselves or something. Isn't that the territory? I think so. And I think that's why music's so powerful when it's actually in its purest form. Man, whatever happened with us, it, it, it definitely worked. And like that's that is the pinnacle of tooth and nail and EMI and the whole staff and like everything just going. And everyone was firing on 10 and it showed, showed in the numbers, it showed in the celebration, it showed in the everyone calling each other excited. Like no one was like, kill me. I hate this record. This cycle is going to kill me. You know, it was just, it felt like everyone was fighting for the same goal. Mm-hmm. And like we, we won, like we actually yeah. won, like we I, won like I, yes. the biggest thing. <laughs> it, it strikes me that people are always saying that, oh, the, those it's not those those Christians give us a bad name. It's it's not that all Christians aren't like these guys or Westboro Baptist Church. You know, there's good. This is like the opposite of that. This is all the people going. Oh, th- this is the what Christians can do really good together. And it's not all Christian or anything. It's not even about that. But it's like, it's a it's such a legitimizing thing that what people can accomplish all together like that. And where you you would want other people to think of of teams working that hard together in that way. That's a an ideal situation. That's how you would like to be known. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like it's it's a different kind of culture and and it's a different kind of people in the culture. Like even, you know, Brandon's always been a businessman and he's always been, you know, in a for-profit business and always has made tough decisions, whether they be good or bad or big or small. But like the one thing is like, he always loved the people that work for him and takes care of them. And he always within reason loved every band he signed. And for us, it's like, he was always there. Like, yo, let's go out to dinner. Let's grab drinks. Like granted, anyone can say, yeah, because you're the biggest band on his label. Of course he's going to do that. He has to, even if he hates you, but like he was doing that before, chasing safety came out like they were being kind and if it wasn't him he's like chad go take care of those dudes like he gave everyone permission to be a good person to the bands as well as try to do good business that makes him and the company money at the same time and i think that's really hard to do and i think he did that for a really long time and i don't know if he's continuing to do that i don't know the state of the union currently but I know when we were there, like everyone just seemed genuinely happy. And a lot of those guys have moved on since and the music industry changed and streaming and new labels and different bands popped. And, you know, everyone has their thing. And, you know, if I'm Brandon, I'm, I would look at it the same way. It's like I had 15, 20, whatever years of growth, growth, growth. And then like a couple years of domination. And if this whole label goes under tomorrow, like I'm not sad. I don't care to keep it open. Like, I did it, and like, let's just start the next thing, you know? And that's how I view our band, and and that's why it's special to me still, in a, in, in a weird way, you know? It's like, there's no pressure. And when you, again, when you really, uh, like, when you relieve that pressure, 
and you really don't care if it sinks, you can take some risks and sometimes they really pay off. My name is Brandon from St. Charles, Missouri. I'm a labeled member, and my favorite tooth and nail band of all time is Under Oath. Matt Carter is our host, editing and story by Matt Carter, sound design and production manager by Reva Hansen. Our executive producer is Brandon Ebel. Special thanks to Adam Scatula, Jim Worthen, Tyson Paletti, and Marshall Frimus at Tooth and Nail Records. This podcast is made possible by Jesse Batesoul, creativevistacoaching.com, Chris Holmes, follow him on Instagram, at frozen underscore cellmate, and the rest of the members of the labeled community on Patreon. If you're interested in becoming a title sponsor like Chris for your band, brand, or nonprofit, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash labeled.